Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 20, Special Delivery. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your co-host today, along with Matt Buffington, Director of Public Affairs at NASA's Ames Research Center in California, and the host of NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. Matt, what's up? Hey, Gary. We're doing great. So glad that we could team up on this. This is also concurrently Episode 69 for NASA, for the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. Uh, you know, there's a ton of overlap between our listeners, so I'm really glad that we were able to make this happen. Yeah, me too. Today is a very special episode because we're teaming up with NASA in Silicon Valley podcast to talk about some of the things that we can find in a cargo vehicle when it's shipped to space, which is perfect because SpaceX will be sending its Dragon cargo vehicle to the International Space Station here soon. So uh, who do we have from Ames, Matt? Over here, we're bringing in Dennis Levison-Gower. He's a project scientist here over at Ames and has has tons of experience working on cargo, working on payloads and sending them on up to the space station. So how about over there in Houston? So we'll have Shane Kimbrough. He's a NASA astronaut who recently spent about six months on the space station and landed earlier this year. And we've actually had him on the podcast to talk about his landing experience back in uh, episode three. But while he was up here, uh, up there, actually, he had quite a few cargo vehicles visit the station. He had the SpaceX Dragon, Orbital ATK Cygnus, Japanese HTV, and the Russian Progress, all within his six-month stay aboard the station. So it's fair to say he knows what cargo on station is all about. He performed hundreds of experiments with the science that was delivered on some of those vehicles and even got some fresh food. So I'm excited to ask him about that experience. Awesome. So I'm really excited to get the different perspective on both the science, you know, on the space station so we can see the astronauts point of view and the people who actually designed those experiments. Yeah, this is going to be a good episode. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Shane Kimbrough and Dennis Leviston-Gower. Enjoy. Okay. All right. Hey, it looks like we're all connected, ready to go. How about this? Houston, we have a podcast and NASA in Silicon Valley combined. Yeah, this is going to be sweet. Sweet. I know. I'm pumped. And we're doing this remotely. So here in Houston, I'm in the studio with NASA astronaut and no stranger to Houston, we have a podcast, Shane Kimbrough. Shane, thanks for being here. Hey, great to be here. Cool. And uh, how about uh, how about over in Ames? Matt, who do you have? Yeah, well, I'm sitting over here with my buddy, <laughs> Dennis Levison-Gower. We actually go way back from uh, SpaceX 8, was it, Dennis? That's right. Yeah. So this is. I always remember it because it was the first time that SpaceX had launched a rocket and landed it on a barge. And, and Dennis was nice enough as I drove him back and forth from his office to do press interviews and stuff. So Nice enough indeed. <laughs> exactly. So um, <laughs> I always like to start our podcast with the question of like, how did you get to NASA? How did you end up in Silicon Valley? But I, I definitely want to hear about that from Shane as well. But let's start off with Dennis. So tell us about like, you know, how did you end up at NASA? Um, well, I really ended up here by accident. Um, <laughs> nice. I was set to be a professor, you know, discover things, have grad, graduate students. Um, I did a PhD in biochemistry. Then I went to Stanford for a postdoctoral fellow doing bone marrow transplantation, uh, graft versus host disease, immunology. And slowly over the years, I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to <laughs> industry. I'm not going to like do the academic track anymore. It was kind of a slow evolution. So I was out there, had my resume posted on job sites and stuff, looking around, just got an email saying, do you want to, you know, are you interested in a position at NASA Ames? Really? And I'm like, this is spam. I don't know anything about rockets. I'm not an engineer. I don't, you know, I'm a biologist. Yeah. So, um, talked to my wife. She's like, 
you have to apply. It's NASA. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought, well, all right, um, at least I could go and see the base and kind of look around because I saw it on the side of the highway. So I knew there's some NASA thing here. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was when I talked to the hiring manager, she really convinced me that this was a really cool opportunity. Um, kind of got, got me into a different headspace of not just doing basic research, but doing applied research and working with a whole different you know, cadre of engineers and operations and safety. And, yeah. and I don't know, it just really appealed to me. So I took a chance and, and took the job. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Like I, I always say, like when people think of NASA, they think of rockets and telescopes. Biology is a huge part of that. Speaking of biology, sometimes we have humans up in space. So, <laughs> so. Excellent segue. I know, right? <laughs> All right. Well, Shane, let's. Uh, how about you? How did you become an astronaut? Well, I came. Uh, there's several obviously avenues to get uh, to be an astronaut. I came through the military. I was oh. an army officer, Apache pilot. Um, my whole army career. Uh, I took a little detour towards the end of, um, I would say, my conventional Army career when I uh, went to graduate school at Georgia Tech, and then I went to teach uh, math at West Point for a few years. And then from there, I was called to come work down at Johnson Space Center for a few years. So uh, I'd applied to be an astronaut that year, didn't get selected, but uh, the good news was I I was, I guess, somewhat in the highly qualified category, so the Army (laughs) detachment down here asked me to come down here and work for a few years. Uh, and that was to really get ready for the 2002 astronaut selection. Guess what? That selection never happened. Oh. Um, so we went through the whole thing, interviews and everything, and um, and it never happened. So wow. um, Congress decided they didn't need a, need a class that year. So no. we hung around for another couple of years, which in a way was you know somewhat rolling the dice on my Army career. But uh, my wife and I felt it was kind of where we wanted to be and what we wanted to do. So. Um, stuck around and, and was lucky enough to get selected in 2004. Lucky and persistent enough. So, yeah, persistence is a big uh, trait, I think. Uh, <laughs> it was my fourth time to apply. So. All right. I was going to say, isn't that normal for astronauts? Because we had Steve Smith like a, a while back on our podcast, and I think he had applied like three or four times as well. Yeah, I, I think at least uh, at least it used to be the norm. A lot of times these days, at least in the last couple of classes, uh, we've had a lot of first timers. But yeah, for for folks um, a little older like myself, yeah, <laughs> I think three or four times was pretty normal. Yeah. Now I remember talking with the uh, 2017 class, and, and and a couple of them applied multiple times. I know for sure Roger Chari did, but yeah, you're right. A couple of them were first timers, but then you got folks like Clay Anderson who applied like like what eight or nine times. <laughs> yeah, or something? Right. Like, <laughs> so yeah, right. It's, persistence. It's exactly persistence, <laughs> and it works out too. All right. Well, this is perfect to to combine forces for the podcast today. Houston, we have a podcast and NASA in Silicon Valley because today's topic is cargo and cargo going to the International Space Station. And Shane, I feel like you're the perfect person to have on the podcast today because you've seen your fair share of cargo vehicles on your last mission, right? Yeah, we we saw everything and we saw Cygnus twice. So uh, <laughs> uh, we had a lot of vehicles coming and going and uh, really cargo when you think about it. Uh, it's the way we handle the logistics problem on the space station. Uh, it's a big logistics problem if you think about it to get equipment and clothes and food and experiments to that orbiting laboratory. So how do we do that? We used to do it with the space shuttle. It was nice and easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it could haul a bunch of stuff. Now we can't do that. So we have these cargo vehicles that you're talking about. 
Yeah, that's right. Because on your way to the space station, you can bring stuff, but now you know you need stuff delivered, right? I mean, it's a huge complex. It's this. It's the size of a five-bedroom house. It needs stuff, right? Exactly. Food, supplies, all that kind of things. Well, that's one of the the funny things as we were coming in, especially as we're getting closer for the SpaceX, you know, thirteen launch coming into it, and when we see like there's the both sides. There's like the people up at the space station working on, you know receiving the cargo or even like science experiments, but then also on the flip side of how do you get that stuff prepared? That is a feat in of itself. That's true. So Dennis, what do you have to do to uh, prepare stuff to go on uh, on cargo missions? Oh, that's, that's a, a big <laughs> question because I mean, it really Start starts one to two years ahead of the launch, really? um, if you think about it or more, because, you know, after you have an experiment defined, um, you know, you've got to prepare exactly what the science requirements are. Then you've got to start making a plan. Then you've got to start assessing what the hardware needs are and the kits needs are. Um, then you have to design those. Then they have to get through safety. You have to plan operations. You have to plan how everything's going to be labeled. And then usually I think somewhere between like three and six months before a launch is when we're going to actually have to like have things prepared, off-gassed, tested, HFIT, oh, label wow. committee, all those things, um, and, and, and do the early load. And then we start preparing the late load chemicals and perishables that really have to be loaded 25 hours before launch, and we do that out at Kennedy Space Center for a SpaceX launch anyways. So, so there's kind of a whole experiment development cycle that wow. happens, and that's just for, like, one payload. And if we have, you know, five, six payloads from Ames coming out, it's a lot of work from a lot of people to send like a box or something. <laughs> and it, it takes a village for it. To yeah. <laughs> gathering all that stuff up. But I'm always curious, like on, on your guys' side, on Shane, for you guys, like when you receive this cargo, like how exactly does that happen or how does that work? Do you guys just, I mean, you're like, like you're unpacking the trunk from a trip, you know? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, we're always excited to open up the hatch and uh, get new stuff. It's kind of like Christmas every time we get one of these vehicles up there. But uh, the way we go about unpacking is very organized and, and it has to be that way. Uh, we have a great team on the ground that uh, gets us ready and prepared with all kind of documents and keeps us organized with charts and things on how they want it to be unpacked. And uh, and so we follow that, you know, religiously. We'll have somebody, somebody in the crew is going to be called the loadmaster, and that person's responsible for that vehicle. Uh, if we just start pulling things out and stowing things where we want to stow them, that's not the way it's going to be because we'll <laughs> never find that stuff. Um, so we really have to be disciplined and put things where they're supposed to go. Uh, a lot of times that means we'll take one bag out, and the bag will have 100 different items in it, and we have to go put those 100 things somewhere. So it's not as easy as pulling a bag out and stuffing it somewhere. Sometimes mm -hmm. it is, but most of the times it's not. So we've really got to, to uh, make sure that we're all helping each other out. And, and it's always better to, as I found with all these cargo ops, to do it as a team versus doing it individually. Um, you just you're much more efficient, and you can have one person kind of reading the book, keeping control of of everything, and the other couple people running things around, and uh, that that really really worked well for us. Wow! So everything has an order and a destination, right? You Absolutely. Gotta act, unload this first and put it in this location, and it's it's all scheduled that way. Yep. How long does it take you to unload completely then? Um, I think uh, we actually set some records for unloading vehicles the quickest, uh, which is a good thing, I guess. But we really, um, you know, we, and we did it by working together as a team. And, and that's the only way Tama and Peggy and I would, would knock out a vehicle, no kidding, in a day and a half or two. Um, but that's pretty unusual. 
uh, that was kind of if it happened to show up, you know, maybe just before a weekend, we kind of used the weekend to do it. So it was kind of a freebie um, where if they had it just planned out during a normal week, it would take a week to two weeks sometimes, depending on the vehicle. That's right, because you got to fit it with everything else that you're doing. Right, exactly. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, and a lot of that, I'd imagine, like, you know, it's already complicated enough. And I'm sure it was like, it's crazy complicated even just within NASA. But then you start throwing in all these private companies and different groups. <laughs> Is everybody, I mean, how do you keep, I don't know, maybe you guys could talk about, like, how do you keep everybody all on the same page on how things get prepared? Because, I mean, Dennis, you're preparing this stuff for these companies, but then... I think know, they all go through NASA. Yeah. I yeah. mean, hmm. you, you'll have private hardware developers but the, the, the manifest is controlled through NASA, mm -hmm. and the crew procedures are controlled through NASA. Um, you know, Shane, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, at some certain point, it has to be layered into the, the, the controlled process of, of NASA, even if it's like, so you could think of it as NASA buying things from different vendors, mm -hmm. but then they'll manage how it goes up, and, you okay. know, or they'll yep, manage totally it through agree. SpaceX, um, how it goes up. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, we saw differences, of course, because the vehicles are all different inside. So the the way they, you know, location coding is all different, and you know where things might be on one is different than another. So uh, that's the only difference. But you know, bottom line is you're going to get a bag, you're going to take it somewhere, you're going <laughs> to take it apart, and then take those things somewhere. And uh, if we keep it pretty simple like that, it made it made it easier on the crew. Definitely, you're the pro mover when it comes to to cargo <laughs> missions. You're going to get a reputation here. <laughs> So how what are some of the main differences then in terms of so Dennis on your end like for qualifications and we can start with that like what's the difference to to get it on that vehicle but then Shane uh, for for unpacking it like some of those little tiny things um, I mean the biggest thing for us is always safety we we go to great lengths to try to um, have chemicals that will not interfere with the life support system uh, that won't be toxic to the crew if they're spilled. Um, Everything that has a tox level will have certain levels of containers and, and uh, containment that have to be layered onto how it's, how it's packaged and how it's stored. Then we have human factors. We have to make sure that 5% uh, Japanese female and the 5% uh, American male can handle the, the things. Um, hmm. and, in, and then even right before it's loaded, we, there's a, like an expert that comes in with, with gloves on and, and feels everything, make sure oh, there's no really? sharp edges on anything and that it's, it's not going to hurt anybody when they start like, pulling them out of the packages. So that's what I've seen on my end, big picture. Yeah, I'd say from our end, um, you know, it's, it's very similar, like I mentioned before, but, we, but there are some things that it's, every vehicle that gets there, there's some critical items that need to come off first. Uh, and we're mm -hmm. well aware of what those are based on the ground team prepping us for that. Um, and most of the time, those are kind of delicate experiments or things like that that have to come off or time sensitive. So uh, we'll, we'll obviously hit those first. And then after that, we'll just follow kind of the script that the ground lays out for us so that we're all on the same sheet of music and everybody knows what's going on. Even if we're doing it in our spare time where the ground control team might not be following, uh, we can kind of just update them with, hey, we did, you know, sections two, three, and four, or whatever it was, and uh, yeah. and then they'll be right caught up, caught back up with us when they get back on on uh, console. Yeah, like if you're doing it on a weekend or something? Correct. Sweet. Yeah. So what's an example of a time-critical, since you unpack so many vehicles, mm -hmm. what's an example of a time-critical experiment you had to unpack? Uh, we had some uh, rodents on board, so that was one thing we had to get off. Those are always time-critical, just to get them set up in their habitats on the space station. Um, that's one. Um, I think some, some that just showed up today, actually on the space station, were things like pizza and ice cream. So, uh, <laughs> Definitely time critical. If you get things like that, those are time critical because you need to eat those quickly. <laughs> but, uh, 
Um, anyway, there's plenty of different, you know, wide range there. I gave you from rodents to ice cream. So. <laughs> right. And I have to chime in on that because like this isn't just like the sad dehydrated stuff you buy at the museum. This no. is like a legit pizza. This is the real deal. Apparently, it's the first time I've heard of a pizza delivery going to the space <laughs> station. So uh, whatever company got that, it's going to be thirty minutes over. or less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be the best pizza, but it'll probably taste good to you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ice cream's legit though. Of course, we didn't have anyone out there, but uh, uh. shortly after I left they got some and they're getting some today so they waited till right after you left (laughs) apparently so oh man (laughs) well after uh spacex 8 launched um all the guys on on the ground at ksc had all these klondike bars like just filling the (laughs) freezer and i'm like where do these come from they go well the cmc team the cargo team um, when they were packing all the cold stowage if there's any empty areas in the freezers they just start stuffing ice cream bars in there oh that's hilarious that's just a surprise for the crew so then yeah, we had extra boxes of uh, Klondike bars. <laughs> cool. Always a welcome treat. <laughs> but like, uh, when you're unpacking doing this, are you? I mean, are you in constant contact with the ground and they're like walking you through it? Or it's just a mix of sometimes you are, sometimes you guys just get the, your to-do list and you just kind of make it happen and update them later on. Yeah, we kind of we have a couple of meetings beforehand, of course, before the vehicle gets there. And there's a whole choreography that they want us to do and the the order they want us to do it in. And so we really were disciplined and followed that um, to the T. You know, a lot of times we'd have questions or something wouldn't be where it was supposed to be, and that's where we'd kind of just call down real quickly and touch base with uh, whoever was on console for that, so that we weren't you know getting out of kind of their choreography even if something wasn't there. Uh, but it, we were they were always there if we needed them. Uh, usually we would just tag up at the end of the day, um, end of a cargo day, and just make mm-hmm. sure um, to tell them exactly what we did so they were uh, up to speed on everything. Well, I don't know if you got any Klondike bars. Was there, was there any missions <laughs> that gave you some, some nice treats? Uh, I think almost every vehicle had care packages from our families All on right. board. Yeah. Those were always a surprise, so that was kind of cool. Uh, we didn't get any um, ice cream, but we got a lot of fresh fruit. Um, and that was kind of cool from, uh, that's another thing that I think they hold on to. And if there's any empty space, they'll just cram them in there. Uh, but some apples and oranges and things like that were really delicious <laughs> um, after not having them for quite a while. I was going to say, yeah, definitely a treat compared to like, you know, it's, it's fresh. It's yeah. literally fresh. And we ate those really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of have to, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't want them to go bad. That's very true. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering like. You know, as you get into the coordination that's needed, and even thinking on the side when, you know, you know, we have researchers, scientists who are creating science experiments. It's like, it's hard enough just doing it in a lab on your own. And so it's like when people are, and I'm wondering, Dennis, from your perspective of like, as people like design and put these experiments together, but then Dennis on your, Dennis on your side, or Shane on your side, um, actually conducting these things. I'm like, talk a little bit about that of like what goes into making an experiment for someone else to do and like your instructions on how to do it. And yeah, it just seems completely, it seems very complicated. I'm looking at you, Dennis. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So what I'll receive is, uh, is basically a grant proposal that had a very high science score from a panel of of reviewers. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I'll start looking at it and saying, can we actually do this in space? Um, because there's crew time is very precious. You cannot do things as quickly in space as you can on the ground. We add like a 1.4 margin of how long it would take us on Earth um, at a minimum. Mm-hmm. It's all got to be done in a self-contained uh, uh, glove box volume. And um, yeah, I start working to um, make make little tweaks and adjustments. Like I said, can we replace this chemical with a non-toxic one? 
Um, can we simplify this procedure? What's the tolerance of, of the time length? Because if they have to do a, an EVA, mm-hmm. we can't have a, a time critical part of our experiment at the same time they got to be outside the station. So yeah. we start looking at every single factor and it just takes months to, to organize that. But then eventually we get that down into a set of crew procedures, just like written step by step, every single thing to do. And it should be as simple as possible. Even though these astronauts are like, you know, super well-trained and super smart, we make these super simple documents to send them. It's kind of funny. Um, and, then, and then the training happens at JSC where like an experienced uh, uh, scientist will go and, and work with the astronauts and, you know, make a fighter pilot into a biologist, right? <laughs> nice. And, um, and then we send everything up. And then on my end, we're sitting in a, in a control room watching a live video of the astronauts. Uh, it's very cool. Um, and, and talking to them. You know, and we usually there's one designated person with the best uh, speaking voice uh, talking, and then there's five people in the room behind them with total chaos yelling, you know, oh, it's storage locker 5B6 alpha. And then they go, oh, storage locker 5B6 alpha. <laughs> and, um, and, and then we just uh, are in their ear pretty much, um, walking them through what, what we need for them to do. I know there's simpler payloads where it's, I think uh, Shane would say you just follow written instruction, but for some of the more complicated things, we're actually talking to them. Walking them yeah, it's it. very helpful to have Dennis and his team there um, talking it to us. You know, we, you know, these scientists in general have spent many, many years creating whatever the experiment it is. And the last thing we want to do is mess it up or mess up some of their data or anything. So uh, we want to be very careful. Um, and all that whole process Dennis explained about, you know, getting the experiment approved and then what he's got to do to get it into a crew procedure. I mean, that takes a lot of people, a lot of time. And so by the time it gets to us, it's pretty well refined. I mean, it's not perfect um, because, you know, like I haven't seen that procedure and I might read something differently than Dennis would read it and Mm -hmm. so on. So it is so nice to have them on the horn, you know, so to speak, right there talking to us in case we have any questions so we don't mess up any of the experiment or any of the data. That's true. And then on top of, you know, off of Dennis's point of making them as simple as possible, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, it's not, you know, you're right. These scientists spend so much time getting these procedures ready for this experiment, but that's not the only one you're doing, right? You are doing quite a few experiments. Very true. And we're not, you know, in general, we're not trained on all of these. Um, We're just kind of trained generically on experiments. So so, uh, like Dennis alluded to, you know, making a a pilot, a biologist for the day. Uh, I was lucky enough to have Peggy there, who is a biologist. So, you know, really, she could help me just kind of understand something that, that normally I wouldn't understand because it's not in my background. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, Dennis and his team can get a get some really complicated per, per, you know experiment into a procedure that's simple, like you said, so that even I can understand it. That's pretty good. <laughs> so, what else do you have to train for besides the uh, scientific experiments? Because Dennis also talked about you know you have to do train for EVAs, and on this last mission you did four. <laughs> so that's quite a big chunk of time that takes away from science. And then you got to train for unloading cargo vehicles. You know, what else are you training for? Yeah, so those are the big ones. Of course, these cargo vehicles, when they come up, we actually use a robotic arm to grab them, oh, to yeah. capture them. So a lot of our training is with the robotics team to make sure that uh, we do that operation successfully. <laughs> um, you know, grabbing something that's going 17,500 miles an hour is oh, wow. is not trivial. <laughs> but uh, with our training, uh, we always train, of course, for the worst case scenarios. And, and the vehicles, um, at least when I was there, behaved very well. So 
Um, it seemed like it was simple, even though the you know you're pretty you know the stress is pretty high, the gains are up because it's a real vehicle, and you want to make sure we grab this thing and and get it on board. So uh, that's another piece of our training that we do. Um, what else? I mean, those are the big ticket items. Like operationally, um, EVAs, like you talked about, mm-hmm. robotics, when we're capturing these vehicles, um, and then most of the other time we're doing experiments. So that makes up of most of our days uh, on board the space station. Yeah. Was it different to use the um, robotic arm to capture the different vehicles, or was the did it translate pretty well? Um, there are differences certainly with every vehicle. Uh-huh. Um, so we had, you know, Cygnus, we had SpaceX, we had HTV from Japan, and mm-hmm. uh, we had a Russian vehicle, but that one kind of docks automatically, so uh-huh. uh, we didn't have to reach out with the robotic arm <laughs> to grab that one. But um, there are there are several differences, and the cues you use are different for every vehicle. So um, again, we get spun up by our training team a week or two prior to each vehicle showing up, so that we remember, hey, you're looking here, not here, based on whatever the vehicle was, and using certain cues to. To, uh, help get the vehicle on board. Nice. I'd imagine that no matter how much you train on that, and I'm sure there's like simulations and different things of like of like remoting the giant robotic arm. Imagine once you're actually doing that for the first time, it's got to be nerve wracking because you're like, this is a very expensive toy. I don't want to mess this up. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it was on the first time, and again, we got several opportunities. So it, you know, I won't say it became less important, but it, but the, you know, you got more comfortable with it. Um, but it is a big deal, um, and and I really wanted Thomas, the French astronaut I was flying with, to get mm-hmm. a lot of experience. So um, when we were together, I grabbed the first one, and then after that, I let him grab all the other ones just to to get his experience level up. And, and you know, he'll go fly again here in a few years, hopefully, and be able to use all that experience um, to help his crewmates out yeah, when he's on board. Definitely. Um, when you uh, when you're training to capture these things, like Matt was saying, you know, when, when you're in the real thing, it's it's a little bit different. But the training, I've seen it before, right? It's it's pretty it's pretty detailed, right? There's like a projection of it's like a I don't know how describe the training. Yeah, so we have this uh, we call it a dome facility because cool. that's what it is, and the graphics are just fantastic. Um, and it gives you the sense of speed, uh, and as things are coming together, and the rates that you're coming are, are very very good. Uh, but it's just not the real thing. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's just kind of like our pool. Our pool is amazing to train for spacewalks, but it's just yeah. not the real thing. So um, there are differences, and until you get up there, and now we're in the cupola. We're flying almost all of these out of the cupola, which um, if you think about it, you're upside down flying it. So spatially, you got to get your head around. You know where are the arms moving, even though you're upside down and those kind of things. So uh-huh. it's not super simple until you actually get up there and do it a few times, and then it becomes a little bit easier on the mind. <laughs> yeah, I can see why they would put you through the training for it, right? Because there's a lot to think about, like just right. being upside down, using the controls, controlling something from a cupola, but then the arms over here, I guess. So. Right. So it's not necessarily right out your window. It, I mean, it is in this mm. case when you're in the cupola, but um, you could fly from the lab as well, and you wouldn't have any windows, and you'd just be using cameras. And that's what we used to do. Yeah. That's what we did on my first flight. <laughs> so um, things have gotten a lot better in that regard. All right. Um, I'm sure they, you know, they write these procedures to be as easy as possible. So, so Dennis, like, what are some of the techniques you you do to whenever you're writing these scientific procedures for the astronauts to to make it as easy as possible for them? Um, yeah, I mean, we try to, um, yeah, just boil it down to step by step, but also add in some some rationale for why you're doing it a certain way, so that if they they don't necessarily have to memorize the exact step, but they can. You know, know what what the end goal is and why they're doing it. So then they know, like, oh, I should make sure I keep this cold, or I should make sure that I handle this gently, and and then hopefully that helps. But I I find that most of the time it boils down to 
yeah, we have the procedure, but then they say, oh, just tell me what to do next. And we're just talking to them. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Especially when, they're, when, they're, uh, when we're in the glove box, right? So yeah. we're immobile when we're in there. We can't kind of move around and do things. Yeah. And how do you um, read something when you're doing that? Yeah. So it's very helpful to have you guys on board. And for me, going back, one thing that occurred to me is like, as you're dealing with some, like, if it's a sensitive science experiment or the precious pizza cargo, um, <laughs> I, I kind of wonder, like, when you're packing, I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of Tetris where you're trying to place things into the cargo to get it to be very efficient. But it's also, I mean, launches are quite intense. And so, I, I, like, so I'd imagine, Dennis, it's like you'd have to, um, I imagine things have to be durable enough to survive such a crazy extreme and like like launching and then then it's floating yeah. out in space and then yeah. then the big robotic arm that yeah. Shane's operating is grabbing it. But then also on the flip side, Shane, I'd imagine for your you know being a human experiencing that <laughs> sensation as well. But what goes into like keeping things safe and packed in? And- yeah, no. Um, for for especially things like the the rodent habitat. Um, we strap it to a table and we vibrate the heck out of it. Oh wow! Um, it goes through like launch impact um, kind of uh, testing. It gets put through temperatures. It goes through pressurization, depressurization, um, anything like that. Like really goes through rigorous testing to make sure it stands up to things. Um, and then it's usually packed in some foam into a locker. Um, then it's uh, put on a scale so that you can find the center of gravity of that hardware. And also like the weight and dimensions. And then from that, you know, some eggheads do some math and like <laughs> some robots like loaded into the capsule the right way. So it's all balanced. And, you know, I don't understand all that part. But um, we just make sure that we've tested everything to withstand whatever. And I mean, it's pretty excessive. I mean, whatever could possibly go wrong, we like test uh, worst case. Um, and then we treat it as gently as possible. And then, you know, is it, uh, wrap it up and ship it up. And how is that, Shane, on your perspective of being the human inside said rocket, <laughs> vibrating and going through those intense pressures? Yeah, you know, when on the Soyuz, uh, which is what I just flew on, I was very surprised on the launch how smooth it was. So I, I had an experience on the space shuttle before, and it was it was kind of rocking and rolling and shaking around like you would imagine. Um, and you see in the movies, but it's, uh, the Soyuz was super smooth. So we pulled about three Gs going going uphill, but um, the ride itself was very smooth. So I was very impressed. So not only like designing the experiments and, and getting them up, but then, then how, you'd mentioned before, Dennis, that it, it could take years in this process. Yeah. I'd imagine that there's several experiments and ideas that never get into Shane's hands or I, great ideas that just either is like funding or different things. It's just, I mean, it's a competitive process and everybody wants their cool science experiment to go up. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, we have a queue of investigators going up till 2022. Um, oh, wow. We're trying to get them flown off as fast as possible, but we're limited by launch vehicles and crew time and um, crew time is becoming less of a concern because we're getting an extra uh, crew member up there. But now it's launch vehicles and can only launch so many experiments at a time. But there's a whole list of reserve experiments of people that have put their heart and soul into something and they they just need like 15 minutes of crew time and they're just <laughs> hoping that their experiment can get done. But I, I mean, Shane this would know. I, think, already up I think they have over 100 experiments at a time on the ISS. Yeah, I think uh, we ended up doing 273, I was told, you know, over wow. the six months. But uh, yeah, at any one time, there can be over 100 on board. That's about right. 
Yeah, and I and I remember someone saying, you know, Peggy's Peggy's going to get every one of those done. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to yeah. like work through the backlog single-handedly. Yeah, yeah. Um, we took out all the uh, task list and all the things that were backlogged for sure while we were yeah. up there. So it was nice. Yeah, and no, a lot of people over here appreciate it when when you guys uh, you know give up some of your free time and, and and bang one of those experiments out. Glad to do it. That's true. What else? Uh, I mean, besides, if you were to <laughs> take the weekend to sort of unpack a cargo vehicle, what else? What else are you doing on the weekends? Uh, weekends, so generally on Saturday mornings, it's spent cleaning. So it's like your house, right? One oh, usually yeah. about once a week, you need to probably do a little cleaning. So we spend all Saturday morning vacuuming the whole station, wiping things down, and uh, just just getting everything back in shape after usually a busy week. Yeah. Uh, and then Saturday afternoons are generally off, and Sundays are generally off. So. Uh, I'm a big sports fan, so I was usually watching games, whether it was football or World Series or, or uh, you know, anything going on. Uh, Tom, I got us into watching uh, rugby, um, so that was big in the in Europe at the time. So we got to watch some of those matches, and so we do that, you know, as a crew sometimes, or sometimes just individually. You'd watch those things, and uh, you certainly can catch up on emails or watch movies or call home or. You know any of those kind of things as well, or you can just look out the window, which is always spectacular. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, something you can't do here on Earth. So I try to do that more often because I can always talk to people or email people when I'm on Earth, but I can't always look out the <laughs> cupola window for you know a rev around the Earth in 90 minutes. So uh, that was pretty cool. That's true. I'm curious how how is that set up? Is it like you don't have a normal weekend <laughs> like you would? You know, it's not like you're commuting home and spending the weekend with your family. I mean, you're sitting there floating in space, so there's never really a day off. You're like always on. Yeah, correct. And uh, so I, w- I had to when I was the commander, I made it clear to my crew that we were going to work uh, from DPC to DPC, which is the kind of the morning conference with Mission Control, all the way to the evening conference with Mission Control. But we weren't going to work outside of that. Uh, and there, there were a few exceptions on the weekends where we would say, hey, you know, hey, let's, you know, there's this one cargo vehicle, for example, we want to unload. Let's do two hours and that's it. We're going to work two hours together. You know, if we've got three people, that's, you know, equates to about six hours of, of work and we can do a lot in two hours. So, but I would make sure we weren't working all weekend because, you know, as the commander, I got to make sure the crew is not exhausted um, for one so they can hit the next week's activities, you know, when Monday starts. But also we got to always be ready for that really, really bad day. Um, uh, an emergency on board the space station, uh, whether that's in the middle of the night or during the day, the crew's got to be fresh enough to handle that. So I'm always thinking about that um, as I'm working the crew and the crew's being worked by the ground. And sometimes we have to mo- to modify what they want us to do um, in order to keep our reserve, so to speak, uh, to be able to handle an emergency. That's right. So as a commander, how much how much jurisdiction do you have on, on time? Because I know they schedule a lot of things for you, but then what, what, what kind of power, I guess, do you have as a commander? Uh, big picture, we'll talk. I'll talk with the lead flight director usually before the week or, or maybe even two weeks out. To, you know, We'll talk about the big picture, how things are going to flow and, and what they want to get done. Um, and then the details just kind of flush out. I don't really you know, have too much um, in, influence on that. I'll let the flight director know, hey, here's what, here's what I want to focus on. Uh, make sure you know, we get maybe a day off here or there because we worked last weekend you know, and mm-hmm. those kind of things because that happens a lot. And then in general, you know, if something's coming up real time, day of, 
you know, and it, things, you know, maybe an experiment or something's running twice as long as it was expected, you know, that happens. And then we'll just adjust, you know, real time. And maybe I'll take the activity that was supposed to, that Peggy was supposed to do next if she's buried in this experiment or vice versa. We'll just help each other out to kind of get all the things done. And, and you do that almost daily. Um, you get done with something early, you go help somebody else uh, if you can, or else you just take something else off of their timeline by, by knocking out something down the road for them. Sounds like you guys are really tight-knit. You guys, like, needed to be a really tight team to get all this stuff done. Totally agree. And uh, I was just super fortunate to have Peggy and Tama on board for, you know, really about 90% of my time on board. Yeah. Uh, I was with Kate and Takuya for only a week or so, unfortunately for me, because they were <laughs> superstars as well, but they yeah. left shortly after we got there. But so really my whole missions was with Peggy and Tama on the U.S. side. And uh, we did really work well together. We thought the same. Um, our work ethic was the same. And uh, we just loved helping each other out and loved being around each other, which doesn't always happen. So I was very, very fortunate. <laughs> very true. Hey, that makes me uh, kind of getting back on track to the to the cargo stuff, though. I was actually thinking about, you know, we were talking a lot about when cargo comes up, how to get it, how to unpack it. But then there's a packing story, right? And they're different for each vehicle because some of them just kind of burn up. Some of them have experiments running before they burn up. And then some of them actually come back. So what are some of the differences there? Yeah, so we had all those. So the only one that comes back to Earth is you're probably aware is SpaceX. Yeah. So, you know, anything that's real critical... Um, experiment-wise or even maybe broken equipment that engineers want to get their hands on to figure out what happened to it, those kind of things we'll put into SpaceX um, so that they can come back to the ground. A lot of that has to do with experiments that we did on our own bodies, um, kind of blood draws and those kind of things need to come back as well as rodent research things will come back on SpaceX because uh, the scientists need to recover them and look at the data and get all that stuff. So that's one thing. Um, all the other vehicles in general burn up, like you mentioned. So yeah. um, to me, I kind of think of it, that's how we manage our trash. All right, that's how we manage trash on the space stations. <laughs> yeah. We create tons of trash, believe it or not, up there, whether it's food trash or clothes trash or, you know, experiment trash or waste, human waste. So all that stuff needs to get off at some point. And the way <laughs> we do that is to use these cargo vehicles that are not coming back to Earth. Um, and we can't just cram things in there like you might think. It's a very organized mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Of, um, and, again, we'll kind of get a plan from the ground, ground team in Mission Control that lays out how they want us to pack it. Um, and a lot of times there are experiments on board that will happen once it leaves the space station um, before it gets burned up, like you mentioned. So mm -hmm. we got to make sure certain aisleways are clear and the airflow is going to be correct so that those experiments can happen correctly. Ah, I see. So um, it's kind of like a, a supply chain, really, because the, the, there needs to be new stuff that's sent up to the International Space Station, and then there, you need to take some of the old stuff out. So it's kind of that's the cycle that keeps the ISS going. Correct, yeah. And, you know, and launch delays and things don't happen, and uh, these launches aren't always happening on time. So sometimes your trash backlog gets pretty high <laughs> oh, on man. the space station. So that's not a you – know, there are some odors and things that go along with that, oh, so no. so we always like to have vehicles coming frequently, <laughs> so we can manage our trash. Of course, along with doing great experiments as well. But you guys have plenty of food and and all that kind of stuff, right? So even if something gets delayed, like you'll be set for a while for at yeah, least a lot of so things. Yeah, I think they have about a six month reserve on board, yeah. so uh, we're, we're, we can handle. Um, a lot of delays, I guess. So. <laughs> so, Dennis, on your end, when it comes to these experiments coming coming back to Earth, and especially on SpaceX, the ones that you actually can get your hands on and, and don't burn up, what are some of the things that you're looking at for those? Um, 
Looking at getting it back as quickly as possible is usually <laughs> our priority, um, mm. especially with rodent experiments, um, cell science experiments. Um, you know, you're trying to study the effects of uh, microgravity on these uh, organisms. And, you know, the minute you start getting back into the Earth's atmosphere, you're going to start experiencing gravity and see molecular changes. So um, the clock is ticking to try to get the samples back. So in the future, hopefully, um, return vehicles can land on, on solid ground and we'll get the samples back even faster. Um, right now, it's taking about a day or two, um, you know, on a boat in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the priorities, um, obviously, for animal experiments, we want you know, all of them alive and happy. And, and so far, we've done it twice, and they have been. Uh, JAXA has also done it twice. Um, all the mice um, did really well in return. And um, yeah, you know, um, intact samples kept at the right stowage temperatures and everything, um, and then we're happy. Well, on a similar note, and this is a slight pivot, but um, you know, I always I love the little catchphrase of working off the earth for the earth. We've talked a lot about you know how it all happens, like you know from you know an idea, an experiment, it's created, it's packed, it's sent up, you then you actually conduct it. But I'd love to like like you know pick your brain, Dennis, and and also Shane of like of the the why. You know, it's like, like, why is like doing experiments in microgravity important? And why, I mean, clearly, you know, NASA and like, you know, the international community is spending a lot of money to put this thing up here. And um, what can we get it out, get out of that that you just can't do on the ground? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that we can't do on the ground. Yeah. Um, I mean, I my bias is that <laughs> we want to go to Mars and we want to explore space and we want to like make Star Trek like real. So um, <laughs> we should be figuring out what happens to our bodies, what happens to physical processes on the on a cellular level. Really understand the biology of what and what changes um, when when the the vector of gravity is removed. Of course, you know there is objectives to. Um, benefit the earth as you say and um, you know one one prime example is uh, you know you can't have a forced bed rest of, of uh, research animals but if they're in space all the gravity load is off and it, and it will mimic conditions where people have extended bed rest or unloading on, on their muscles you also um, microgravity seems to have kind of an accelerated aging effect so you can look at um, age-related factors you have fluid shifts and and uh, high basically like high blood pressure in your brain and that starts mm-hmm. affecting the astronaut's vision and and things like that and we want to understand how that works so you have a lot of um you know like growing 3d tissues in in the lab to be able to do those kind of things um, you may be able to do them better in space and understand the processes better in space and um yeah i think it, it directly translates into into um benefits to earth um you know some sometimes you have to connect the dots a little bit to see yeah, how yeah. that space research really affects the ground but if you look at every experiment we've done um it all it always has spin off benefits tough to add much to that and that's <laughs> that's very true um the way i look at it is we're everything we do up there is either for future exploration like Dennis mentioned or it's to help uh humanity in general so if we're not doing that i i think we're really missing the boat but uh everything that we touched up there and i've been involved with has met one of those two criteria <laughs> Uh, one example I like to think of is, you know, we we have this machine up there that makes water, right? So it takes every bit of liquid on board the space station from urine to sweat to condensation to anything. And it goes in this machine and it makes water that's extremely pure that we use for our food and our drinks, you know, the next day, so to speak. 
Um, it's a great technology for us to have. It's not something we have to have for the space station, but it's, we will have to have something like that for Mars or Moon or wherever we're going to go deep space. So, you know, we're working on that now for future exploration. You know, a side benefit of this whole thing is we actually use that technology on Earth as well. Um, there's third world countries that don't have clean water supplies, mm -hmm. and the same technology is helping them get clean water. Um, so that's really a cool thing uh, when you're kind of helping future exploration and you're helping humanity. That's just one example, right? That's one, exactly. one thing on the station that's helping in both directions. Matt, I think that's a really good place to end the podcast. I think that's perfect, dude. <laughs> I think that's fantastic because it kind of sums up, you know, why do we do all these, all the science and why the science goes up and down to the International Space Station. Guys, thanks so much for coming on the show, both to Shane and Dennis for coming on Houston. We have a podcast and NASA in Silicon Valley. The first time we're doing this together. Matt, I really hope we can do this again. With our powers combined. <laughs> it works out. Thanks a lot for helping pull this together this has been a lot of fun yeah absolutely thanks it was guys. great thanks everybody yeah, yeah huge thanks, thanks to dennis me. and shane that's awesome you.